have in your bulletins an insert that um, I don't know if Bob mentioned, but uh, it's an insert of radio stations on one side where the the daily program is, uh, and on the back is a list of the satellite network. Last night was the first night that we carried the service, Saturday night service, live across the nation on these 76 uh, radio stations, and they're adding about one more, they say, a week uh, to that list. But maybe you have friends or family in these areas, and you could say, hey, we have a live service on Saturday night. If you can tune in, and maybe you'll say, oh, look, I'll attend, and about five minutes into the message, you'll hear me cough real loud. That's my way of saying hello to you. And uh, No, I wouldn't suggest that. Anyway, let's turn to Psalm 42 this morning. Psalm 42 and 43. Back in 1835, in Florence, Italy, a man went to visit his doctor. He told the doctor that he was filled with anxiety. He had not eaten for days. Uh, He had not... um, Uh, slept very well. He sort of shunned his friends. And the man gave him his history. The doctor examined him, found there was nothing physically wrong with him. He was in perfect, prime physical condition. So the doctor was thinking, this guy probably needs a good rest, a break. So he suggested that he go to the circus that was in town and that the world's funniest clown, the great Grimaldi, was part of that circus. you got to go see him. I think that will really cure your sadness. He'll have you rolling in the aisles. He'll pick you up, and it will cure the condition you have. The man said, no, it won't help, for you see, I am Grimaldi. The funny man, the entertainer, the guy who had people rolling in the aisles was himself singing the blues. There's times like that, aren't there? Times when the blue skies give way to gray skies, when the sun seems to hide, when there are sighs instead of smiles. And perhaps that's why we love the book of Psalms so much. Because Psalms is filled with honest expressions of this is real life. This is the condition that we go through and the problems that we face in the light of God. Psalm 42 and 43 are about that. In fact, the theme of these psalms would be spiritual depression. A man who is far from God, he's crying out to God, he's being taunted by other people. He feels down in the dumps, cast down. Now, I used a term, spiritual depression. That was a term coined by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a medical doctor in England, who became the pastor of Westminster Chapel later on. He wrote a book before his death in 1965 that became a bestseller entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. It's a tremendous book. It sold many, many volumes because so many people experience this kind of stuff. As the ancients used to call it, the dark night of the soul. Your zest for life seems to be attacked Little tasks seems like insurmountable obstacles. Words like hope, joy, peace are meaningless. One author described this condition as a miserable, wretched experience that leaves you exhausted, uninvolved, and in deep, hopeless despair. 
There seems to be absolutely nowhere to turn and not one single thing you can do to escape these horrible feelings. You feel doomed, trapped, and at the end of your rope, it's awful. And you know what? Christians are not immune. Because we have an enemy who goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he will throw anything and everything at you to discourage you. Add to that the fact that we live in the world surrounded by unbelievers who persecute us. Add to that the stigma of guilt that some Christians feel because, after all, I shouldn't feel this way. I'm a Christian. And you have a recipe for Psalm 42 and 43, spiritual depression. Let's look at these psalms together. They really are one psalm. Psalm 42 has an inscription of introduction. Psalm 43 has none. The language is similar and it's thought to be the same. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mitzar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. While they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I want to begin generally and just contemplate spiritual depression. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people can become depressed. There's a lot of people who are. Lest you think, well, not many people really fit into this category. U.S. News and World Report, in an article not so long ago, said an estimated 30 million to 40 million Americans will experience depression at least once. Not only that, the article went on to say, so pervasive is depression that it's called the common cold of mental illness. 
And the article went on to say it's on the rise. It's increasing. Of the ten most diagnosed problems by primary care physicians, depression ranks in that top ten. And it's increasing among the youth. It's getting younger and younger. In the last five years, suicide has risen 150%, mostly due to depression. Why? Well, there are lots of reasons why. There's some obvious ones. Feeling of detachment socially, uh, not being accepted by parents or peers, not meeting up to standards. But there are other factors, and I, I bet here's one you haven't thought of. Technology. Technology is adding to depressive cycles. In an article written by Rick Lawrence called Techno Teens, he said, VCRs, personal computers, cassette players, video games allow teenagers to shut out the real world and live in an exciting, non-threatening, black-and-white world that stimulates their emotions but requires no vulnerability or commitment. There's a lack of communication as one result and a lack of the kind of social interaction that provides a sense of self for another. The lack of relationships then leads to depression, and they, that is the teens, I would say anybody who is, would turn more and more to technology for escape and for comfort. Okay, I can't live or deal well in the real world, but I can deal really well in this imaginary game world. But every time I do, it doesn't help the real world, and when I go into the real world, it gets worse, so I'll retreat back into the fake world. It can add to depression. Now, um, I am not a doctor. I am not a clinician. And I also realize that uh, of the many reasons people get depressed, uh, it's not monolithic. It's variegated. There are many facets to it. There are physical reasons. There is something called clinical depression. When the chemical messengers called neurotransmitters are hindered in the brain, the result can be depression. For example, if the brain uh, has a deficiency of serotonin when the levels are down, it causes an erratic sleep pattern. You lose sleep where serotonin is replenished during the night. It causes uh, anxiety. If there's a, a depletion in the norepinephrine levels in the brain, it causes depressive moods and uh, fatigue as well. If there's an increase in the hormone called cortisol, it makes you hypersensitive to fear and to stress, and that can also create problems that lead to depression. So there is organic depression, and in those cases, the brain as an organ has to be treated as an organ. But there are other times where it's not organic, it's not that kind of clinical depression, but there are spiritual reasons that also bleed into the emotional realm. And primarily, since I am not a physician and I'm dealing with Psalm 42 and 43, that's what we deal with today. Now, also generally, I want to talk about two flaws, two spiritual flaws, I call them. You've heard of four spiritual laws? Well, these are two spiritual flaws, and I find them among many Christians. Flaw number one, because you're a Christian, that means all of your problems are automatically solved. Baloney. And yet, sometimes, evangelistically, we tell people, we tell the dear unbelievers, come to Christ, all your problems will be solved. Boy, that's a high expectation. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have resources in Christ the world doesn't have. 
We have hope in Christ the world doesn't have, and we'll get to that. But it doesn't mean it's an easy road or a downhill slide. In fact, it's often worse. Because now you bear the Christian gospel in a hostile world that says, you narrow-minded bigot. And all of those names contend eventually to cause a feeling of depression. The road can get rougher. Flaw number two. Well, if you're depressed, you must be unspiritual. Or at least immature. Because mature spiritual believers never get depressed. Well, you must have never read the Bible. Because so many of the heroes inside the Bible, as well as out, have suffered this condition that we read about here in these Psalms. David, who didn't even write this Psalm, but in so many others, spoke about the anguish of his soul. A few psalms back, he said, My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Uh, Then there's Elijah. Remember him? After the great episode on Mount Carmel, runs into the Sinai Desert, and this great man of faith sits under a bush and says, Kill me! Just kill me, God! Life isn't worth living. That's That's a mood swing, folks, from Mount Carmel. Then there's Job whom God said was the most righteous man who lived on earth, and he's cursed the day of his birth. Oh, that I never would have been born, he said. And lament after lament unfolds as he is emotionally stricken due to his physical condition. Then there's Paul the Apostle who said, we are pressed in on every side by troubles, we are perplexed. Now, outside the Bible, I think of classic examples like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher from London, England, who suffered many close encounters with depression. He even told his congregation, he said, I go through bouts of depression so deep, so bad, I hope none of you ever go through. In one of his messages, he said, there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Add to that the stigma of guilt that many Christians feel when they don't feel happy, when they don't feel perfect and ebullient and joyous. There's that stigma of guilt that many people feel because during depressive times, there's an exaggerated sense of sinfulness as we look in an introverted way inside. As one person said, for the Christian... Feeling down can be more damaging than falling down. And quoting Proverbs 17, he said, A broken spirit dries up the bones. Now I draw your attention to the inscription of this psalm, even before the first verse. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. This was not a psalm written by David, but one of the sons of Korah. Do you remember Korah? Do you remember Numbers chapter 16? Korah, who was a Levite of the family of the priests, decided that he would get in Moses and Aaron's face and challenge their leadership. So he took 250 leaders, surrounded Moses, and said, We don't like your leadership. We don't think you're in charge. And God had an answer for them. The earth opened up and swallowed them. They were judged instantly by God. But God spared the sons of Korah, and by an act of grace, commissioned them for service. I'm sure they served gladly after that incident, don't you? Oh, yes, sir. We'll do anything you want, God. Well, what happened to them? They, they became 
not only the priests, but the worship end of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple. David, when he selects the Levitical choir later on in the books of Chronicles, he chooses the sons of Korah. So this group, the descendants of Korah, they were in charge of the production and the performance of worship music for the tabernacle. That's all background so that you'll understand this cry of this psalm. When will I appear before God? The desire to be in the tabernacle, in the temple, and do what God had called them to do. Let's now then take these verses out of, sort of one at a time, section by section, and look at the causes of spiritual depression as outlined here. There are five. I'm sure there are more. But for this psalm, these two psalms, there are five causes of spiritual depression. Number one, unfulfilled expectations. This is what I expect, but I didn't get it. And that can tend toward depression. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. Whoever wrote this psalm, whichever son, descendant of Korah it was, this guy was far away from Jerusalem. He is stuck somewhere by exile, by circumstances. He can't get to Jerusalem. He can't join the pilgrims as they make their way down there. And he's very bummed out at this point. He should be in Jerusalem. He can't get there. He has the expectation and he can't make it. He says he's like a deer in verse 1 that pants after the water, but he himself can't find refreshment because he's stuck. In verse 6, we kind of find out where he's at. He says, therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, or Mount Hermon up north, from the hill Mitzar. So this guy is on the other side of the Jordan to the northeast of Israel in the area of Mount Hermon where the streams of water flow down into the rest of the nation. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He can't. The expectation is unfulfilled. Whenever... We make plans to do something. We have a desire to do something. We look forward to something. When that something doesn't come to pass, the results can be we're cast down. It's disheartening. Solomon said in Proverbs 13, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. I think this was Elijah's problem, frankly. Now, here's Elijah on Mount Carmel. What a blast, literally. Fire was called down from heaven, exploded over the sacrifice, consumed it. In an awesome display of God's glory, the people who had gathered that day saw God is real. The prophets of Baal were killed and banished. And all of the people on Mount Carmel that witnessed this said, God is the Lord. And I'm sure that Elijah expected a national revival. The whole nation, king, queen, servants, everyone, they're all going to turn to God. Well, they didn't. In fact, the queen said to Elijah, if I don't kill you by tomorrow night, then I'm going to, I wish myself dead. 
And so she and her troops pursue him down into the Sinai. That's why he said, okay, I'm no better than my ancestors. Just kill me now, God. The expectation of revival didn't happen, drove him into depression. Now also remember, because they're descendants of Korah, because their occupation in life is to be in the temple, around worshipers, leading the worship, this guy is stuck far away from the place of worship. So his whole purpose in life, his whole meaning, his sense of usefulness is being challenged. I'm sure it's the same feeling of people who uh, are, are caught in a job they hate. Man, I hate this job. It's a dead end. I have more talents than this. I have more gifts than this. They ought to be used. Or people who are forced from their job into an early retirement. Or people who are debilitated because of a disease and they feel constrained. Their sense of usefulness and purpose is being challenged. Unfulfilled expectations. We all have, well, we all have realistic expectations. Normal life. We expect to grow up. We expect to get married, get a career, on and on and on. When those things are circumvented or hindered, it's very, very disheartening. But some of us have more unrealistic expectations. I expect every day to be perfect, pleasant, no problems. If you're that kind of a person, you're really a mess. Because the more unrealistic your expectations, the deeper forms of depression you'll experience. I found an interesting article in Religion Watch from December 1993. Quote, Pentecostals are three times more likely than any other Christians to experience major depression. According to the Vanderbilt University study. The overall group, 2,850 North Carolinians, Carolinians, over a six-month period experienced serious depression at a rate of 1.7%. Now, this is just the Christian South that are being polled. 1.7%. Whereas the rate among Pentecostals was 5.4%. Researchers surmise that the higher rate may be partly because people who are already depressed are attracted to Pentecostalism's emphasis on spiritual and physical healing. And so you have people say, I expect a miracle every day. Well, what if the miracle doesn't happen on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? Wow, you're setting yourself up for something that is biblically unrealistic. There are more causes. I have a second one here. And that is the taunts of unbelievers. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they, whoever they are, continually say to me, Where is your God? Ever heard that? Verse 10. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Here's a guy surrounded by the world, by unbelievers. They're not sympathetic with the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And here's this guy, this Levite, who says, I trust God, I worship God. Where is your God? Look, you're stuck here. Now, some of you have had this experience. You suffer wrong for doing everything right. You serve God, you love God, you represent God in your witness, and you find that you get persecuted for it. Wait a minute, I'm doing everything right. Why am I suffering wrong? Because you're surrounded by the taunts of unbelievers. Here you are, Joe Christian in secular university with Joe and Jane unbeliever. 
And Joe Professor on the first day of your college biology class says, do we have any Christians here? This happened to me in my first class of zoology in college. And I raised my hand. Oh, you believe in that? And the rest of the class, I was just ridiculed for my belief. I thought, wait a minute, isn't this a biology, zoology class, not a religious course? But you're targeted. Or you work in a secular environment. You're targeted. You're called bigoted, narrow-minded, unloving. You're called all sorts of names. They smirk at you. They laugh at you. And maybe you have a Christian bumper sticker. They try to run you off the road. The taunts of unbelievers can add to that. There's also a third cause, overwhelming struggles in life. Verse 7, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. This is a poetic description of saying, I feel like it's all crashing in on me. The trials of life, there's so many of them, and I feel like it's crushing me. It seems like the psalmist up in the Mount Hermon area, is sitting by a stream. Very, very plentiful in that region. And he probably sees a deer go by and writes verse 1. And he sees the streams of water flowing over the rocks. And he thinks, I'm like those rocks. The water's over my head. But what's interesting to me is being up in the Mount Hermon region, he talks about waves and billows, the kind of thing you only get in the ocean. Now, coming from an area where I surfed, I really know what it's like to have waves and billows crashing over you. Out in the surf, I've caught the wave too early or too late, and you go over the falls or you get caught in Maytagville. Just You can't get out. You feel crushed by the wave. You learn to respect the ocean. Here's a guy by the streams, and looking at the streams, he thinks, yeah, but my trials are a lot worse than the stream. They're like the waves of the ocean crashing over me. Overwhelming struggles of life. Listen to Paul the Apostle. You say, oh, Paul the Apostle must have had sort of a carefree life, always up. Well, 2 Corinthians 11 will change your mind. I have labored and toiled, said Paul. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, besides everything else, if that wasn't enough. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You hear that language? Insomnia, daily pressures. Mounted up. That's how Paul felt many times. This kind of stuff can all add up, mount up, seem insurmountable. It's not just one thing, it's two, three, four. They just keep accumulating. The struggles of life, overwhelming. There was a book written some years back by Thomas Bonama and Dennis Slevin called The Executive Stress Manual. Clever little book. Talked about the stress of people, especially executives, in daily life. And the point was this. You can take so much. After a while, you'll, you'll crash. So he took the normal responses, excuse me, normal experiences of life and gave them a value which they call life change units. The greater the number of units you have, the greater possibility, the greater the risk of an emotional and physical problem. They said if you have up to about 200 of these life change units in one year, look out. If you have between 200 and 300 in one year, you're in for a major volatile crash. 
This is their opinion, but it's an interesting book. Let me give you some of those experiences, as they put it. The death of a spouse, they have figured, would give you a hundred life change units. Divorce, 73. Marital separation from a mate, 65 life change units. Detention in jail or institution, 63. Death of a close family member, 63. Major personal injury or illness, 53 life change units. Marriage, 50. It's interesting, isn't it? Stress can be good and bad. It's still the same on the body, but 50 in marriage. Being fired, 47. So more stressful to be married than it is to get fired, according to them. (laughs) Retirement from work, 45 life change units. Pregnancy, 40. Vacation, 13. You still got to think, am I going to get, do I got the right gas? Car loaded up, are all the kids in it? (laughs) Christmas will give you 12 life change units, sometimes more, right? So three reasons, three causes for spiritual depression. Unfulfilled expectation, taunts of unbelievers, the overwhelming struggles of life. Let's look at a fourth, verse 4. The wrong use of the past. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. This guy has memories of better days. He's stuck. He remembers the way it used to be, the way it ought to be, the good old days. He's looking back. Folks, the past can either be a rudder to guide you or an anchor to hold you back. If you just get stuck in the past, if it snags you and you're, you're caught in a time warp, it can be devastating. It's interesting to me uh, how marketable nostalgia is these days. Where people are, are, are uh, they, they buy it up. The old music, the old clothes. Remember when? Remember when we had bell-bottoms, man, and tie-dye t-shirts and Volkswagen buses without air conditioning, smoothies, granola? That's life. Let's recapture it all back again. Living in a time warp. Looking back rather than looking ahead. And sometimes Christians can get snagged. Here's a guy who's thinking, oh, I remember the temple sacrifices, the smell, the sound of the worship in Jerusalem. It's legitimate, but it's still the past. There's another one. I could have mentioned this at first, but I saved it for last. Another cause of spiritual depression, preoccupation with yourself. Now, if you were to count up the personal pronouns in Psalm 42 and 43, there are 51. In other words, the word I is used 14 times, me is used 16 times, my is used 21 times. At the same time, the psalmist mentions God 20 times and the Lord once. So 21 to 51. I would say he's a bit preoccupied with himself. It's not God, it's himself. His plans are not fulfilled. His life is crashing in on him. His past hasn't been changed. It's his life, his problems. Now, folks, there are many reasons for depression. This isn't the only one, but it's one of the biggest ones. Selfishness, focusing on yourself. Now, there is a point where we should examine our lives and turn inward and say, who am I before God? What should I be doing? Should I change? Do I need to repent of something? 
Is there something God is trying to speak to me? But be careful, because you can begin to see yourself in every experience in life. That's what I think this guy in Psalm 42 and 43 did. He's up there by Mount Hermon. He's by a stream, and he sees a deer go by. He goes, yeah, that's like me, man. I'm that deer. I can't get refreshment. And he sees the stream. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm surrounded by water. It's worse than the stream. It's preoccupation with himself. Listen to this article called Recipe for a Miserable Life. Here's the recipe for a miserable life. Ready? Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favor shown them. Never forget a service that you may have rendered. Be on the lookout for a good time for yourself. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. Love yourself supremely. Be selfish. That's the advice, by the way, the world is telling you to do. Think about you. Consider yourself. You deserve the break today. Love yourself. The more people do that, the more miserable they become. Let's turn now to the cures. The same psalm that gives the causes gives the cures of spiritual depression. Let me be quick to say that, and I'm sure you already know this, how many people turn to false cures when they're feeling bad? I feel so bad I need a bottle. I need booze. I feel so bad I've got to find a pill. I feel so bad I've got to have excessive entertainment to get my mind off me. Leadership Magazine said one in four American men deal with depression by trying to analyze the problem, whereas 35% report their method for combating depression is watching TV. That's going to help? It's got to make it worse. What are some of the cures? Let me give you three as outlined here. Replace your thoughts with His truth. Replace your thoughts with God's truth. Notice that the psalmist talks to himself, verse 5, verse 11. He laments, but you know it's kind of this push and pull. Oh man, it's horrible. Hey, how come you're cast down, soul? Listen up here, soul. Hope in God. He talks to himself. In other words, he realistically says, this is how I feel, but this is the truth, and the truth must replace how I feel. He talks to himself. You were ever probably told, never talk to yourself, it's bad? No, it's good. Listen to the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the medical doctor turned pastor. He said, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, and question yourself. So when those thoughts come to you in the morning or come to you at night, they didn't originate. You know, you're, you're not doing it. They're coming to you and saying, this is going to happen. This is bad. Tell the truth to your own heart. Replace it with God's Word. Replace your thoughts with His truth. Secondly, replace yourself with your God. 
It's natural in times of depression to think about ourselves, to be absorbed with my needs, my problems. It's normal and natural. But bring God into the situation. When you bring God into the situation and your focus is on Him more than yourself, you can't help but get elevated when you're looking at Him. That's what verse 8 is all about, by the way. It's like a, a flash of hope in the midst of despair. Look at it. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That's the answer. Replace yourself with your God. Now, a side note. Here's a guy who has changed his environment. He's up by Mount Hermon. That's the Golan Heights. Folks, that's one of the prettiest spots in all of the Middle East. Beautiful. Mountain streams, waterfalls, huge peaks, lush green environment. But even though he's changed his environment, that in itself is not a cure for depression. Yet some will say, man, things are tough. I'm going to move. I'm going to quit. I'm going to get another job. I'm going to change spouses. You can do all of that, but you know what? You still have you. Wherever you go, there you are. All of those thoughts are still within you. The key isn't changing the perspective environmentally, but spiritually. That's what the psalmist does. You might say your outlook is determined by your uplook. Example. Martin Luther, the great reformer, went through a period of deep introspective depression. He was glum. He hung his head. He moped around the house. And after a while, his wife, Katie, not knowing how to minister to him, decided to call his bluff. And one day she dressed all in black like she was mourning somebody's death. When Luther came home and he said, Who died? She said, God is dead. He said, What? How can you say that? He goes, Well, Looking at your life the last several weeks, God must have died. I don't know what it did, but it shook him. And after that, he put up a sign over his study. In Latin, vivit, he lives. He lives. It changed his focus from off of Martin Luther onto God. God lives. And it started picking up the way he was thinking and the way he was living. Thirdly, replace your past with your future. There is a word that keeps recurring. Have you noticed it in these two psalms? It's the word hope. That's a word for the future. Replace your past. You failed, you've blown it. Join the crowd. Replace your past now with your future. That's what the psalmist does. Hope in God, he says three times. And verse, uh, or chapter Psalm 43 is a psalm of hope in the same circumstance he's going through. Uh, verses 1 through 3, it's hope that God will protect him, preserve him, defeat his enemies. In uh, verse 3, that God will direct him in the future by guidance. In verse 4 and 5, that he will be happy again, joy will come his way, and God will fill his heart with singing. So the answer to spiritual depression is hope. People in depression often focus on the past. People that climb out of it often focus on the future. Paul said, I forget the things which are behind. I look forward or press toward those things which are before, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. As you look back, see God in the past. And then look to the future. God's been faithful in the past. 
He'll be faithful now and in the future. Um, a woman by the name of Frances Ridley Havergale, you may have heard of her name. She gave many, many songs to the Christian church. Many happy songs. One of the songs, one of the hymns is, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Yet, this woman suffered deep depression. She thought mostly of herself, of her faults. Uh, She was defeated. She lacked joy. Something changed in her life. She was reading the Bible in the original Greek. She could read the original languages. She was reading the Greek manuscript in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. In the original Greek, it's in the present tense. The blood of Jesus Christ is always continually cleansing us from all sin. And as she read that in the Greek, that tense, that verb tense, it was like a new day had dawned. Here's a woman focusing on the past, her problems, her failures, and God is saying, let the future eclipse the past. I'll cleanse you now like I cleansed you then. I'll cleanse you in the future. Her focus was now on the future, what God could do from this point on rather than just the past. I think the saddest note ever written during a time of depression was written by Hugh Pryor, the actor, who committed suicide in Las Vegas, Nevada. The note that was found by his body was very short. It said, tell my friends I'll see them in hell. Can you think of a more despairing note? tell my friends I'll see them in hell, then boom, your life's over. Compare that ending with the ending that we read here. Hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. The answer is not go see Grimaldi. It's go see Christ. The outlook is determined by the uplook. Spiritual depression, you need spiritual means to deal with it. Father, we thank you that when our soul is cast down by whatever factors are involved, we are not alone. Some of the greatest men and women in biblical and extra-biblical history have suffered and do suffer the same. Depths, waves, and billows. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to replace the thoughts that bombard us with the truth that is given to us, revealed in your word. Help us, Lord, to replace ourself with how great our God is. Help us to replace our past with what you've done in our past and forgiving our sins, continuing to cleanse us, and what you'll do for us in the future. I pray that we'll hope and that we'll sing we will yet praise you in Jesus' name. Let's stay. Let's stay.